Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast about that time of life that tends to take us all by surprise. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Let's get right into it. Today, I'm talking to Esther Nagel, and I'm actually really excited about this because we contacted each other a couple of weeks ago and we said oh you know we'll do a quick some 15 minute 20 minute session to talk to each other an hour and a quarter later we were still (laughs) on the phone so Esther I'm really intrigued by this she's (laughs) just to give you a little bit of background about Esther she says I am a sober tattooed single mother perimenopausal rock chick yoga teacher with ADHD which just about sums up our conversation the other day because that was (laughs) Just great. So you were diagnosed with ADHD when you were in your 40s. Is that right? I was, yeah. I was diagnosed last year when I was I was 46. So I was a month away from my 47th birthday when I was diagnosed. And I'd worked it out. Um, I think it was the September of the year before when I got my, my GP confirmed that I probably do have it. I'd suspected for quite a while, for about a year before that. So I was kind of figured it out in my mid-40s, around about 44, 45, I figured it out. And when I got the diagnosis last year, I think within about the first three questions, both me and the psychiatrist knew that the answer was going to be a resounding yes, because I was answering every question <laughs> very excitedly, bouncing around in my seat with, you know, three different stories to explain why the answer to the question was very definitely, yes, I do have that symptom. <laughs> it, was, it was really quite amusing. And, and, and the, when I got in the diagnosis process, the first clue that I had was when he told me I have a list of questions and I'm going to ask you them. My first thought was, can you just give me the form so I can write the answers myself, please? Because I just didn't have the patience for somebody to sit there and ask me questions when I knew I could have written the answers myself. Like, there was my answer right there, really. <laughs> it's, it's just amazing. ADHD, they reckon, is actually probably an equal number of girls and boys that get it, but it's the boys that are diagnosed. You know, we've all yeah. got this image of an ADHD kid who, you know, he's a boy, he's bouncing off the walls and rocketing around the classroom and can't sit still for five minutes. But in girls, it presents differently, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So girls are either more the inattentive type, so we're the quiet daydreamers who just get lost in our own heads, can't focus, can't, you know, kind of finish anything, will get distracted from, you know, you do something for more than two minutes and you've forgotten what you were doing. Oh, we're very talkative. And the the hyperactivity comes out as being really chatty. Now, in the summer, I met a little girl. I don't think she paused for breath. She she was just like this constant stream of chatter. She was adorable. But, you know, that's, to me, just said, I wonder if she's got ADHD. (laughs) Because she just didn't stop. She just did not stop talking. And it was from one topic to the next without pause you know you could just see her mind was racing with all these ideas and so you know she she's probably I would imagine she's certainly worth considering that she's got ADHD but I don't know if anybody would it's interesting years ago before I had the kids I used to teach swimming and there was this one little girl in my class she was six maybe six and swear to God, she was like that. So I'd, it was like the beginner's class, the before kids in the class, and the other three would sit on the side while I took one of them. And she'd be talking even when I wasn't there. And when she was in the water, I'd go, I can't remember her name, I think it was Emily. Head in the water, blow bubbles, you know, like you do. And she'd still be talking. You see that? Bubbles are blowing. She's still yelling. And her mum said they drove up from Sydney to Brisbane or somewhere to go on holiday, 11-hour drive. She said she stopped talking for 20 minutes in an 11-hour drive. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking about that. Like, it's really fascinating. But then what are the implications? Because we don't think of little girls as having ADHD or bigger girls, but, you know, we don't think of girls as having ADHD. It's really unusual. But if it's, it's kind of like 
what was the impact on you? That's where I'm going with it. What happened for you and throughout your life? How did it, how did it impact you? It was kind of devastating, really. Um, so, you know, there's an awful lot of things that, that happen when you've got ADHD and you don't know. And I think particularly for girls, because, I mean, at a more general level, the epitome of the good woman in society is, you know, well-organized, keeps a nice home, looks after the kids well, follows the standards of what a good mum is supposed to be, what a good woman is supposed to be. And ADHD kind of flies in the face of all of that because, you know, can't keep a room tidy, can't even keep a table tidy, you know, never mind an entire house, can't achieve what we're supposed to achieve. And so I grew up being told I am messy, I am failing, I am not achieving my potential, I am, I and everything was you are this, you are this, you are messy, you are forgetful, you are really bad at looking after your things, you are this, you are, you are, you are. And so I didn't actually question any of that because, you know, when your mom is telling you you're messy and you're careless and you're thoughtless and you're all of this stuff, you believe her because, you know, she wasn't saying that to hurt me. She was saying that because that was her experience of me. But what it did was it gave me this sense even before I mean god even before I left primary school I kind of knew I wasn't really good enough and and I didn't ever really fit in anywhere you know and, and that's a common thing for people with ADHD to say is I didn't feel like I fitted in so I um I grew up in a very small Welsh valleys town where in the 70s, pretty much everyone was of um, coal mining heritage. You know, their grandfathers had been down the mines. And my family was different because my mum was from London. So even from the start, without the ADHD, I stood out because I spoke differently. Because, you know, I'd been taught to speak by a woman with an English accent, not a Welsh accent. So I stood out right from the start. And then my ADHD made me stand out even more because I look back at now how I used to behave in school and I was weird. You know, I was an odd kid. I had odd interests. I didn't like the same things as other people. I would say and do some really peculiar things and not even realize why they were weird, you know. And so I never felt like people accepted me. And, and I grew up not really having any sense of my value in life. You know, I knew that I could do better. I always knew that I wasn't achieving what I should have been achieving. You know, I knew I was intelligent, but I couldn't quite pull it off. The one subject that I was ridiculously good at was the subject that my mother taught in school. So I hated the fact that I was good at it and I I stopped taking it, even though... I, I could speak French like a native and I dreamed of traveling the world and becoming multilingual and I wanted to live in France, but I hated the fact that I was good at French. So I stopped taking French as soon as I could. You know, I sabotaged myself so much in school, but then as an adult that all, you know, that didn't stop when I left school. And, and as an adult that became worse and I discovered alcohol and I discovered drugs and I discovered that if I drank enough, I could ignore how I felt and I could feel like I could fit in because I found a group of people who would accept me because they were all kind of misfits. They were all, you know, they'd all been a bit on the fringes of their school life. They didn't know me from school. I went to a different school. And, and so they accepted me. But with them came this partying lifestyle, which was great fun. But it led me down a really dark path. And about 20, I kind of fell into what would, was to become 20 years of alcoholism and continual self-abuse and self-sabotage. And, you know, I've achieved a lot in lots of ways. I got a degree. I got a, a teaching degree when I was raising a, a very small child. I was a single mum and I managed to get a degree, which quite an achievement but I was never able to see those achievements because there was always the well I could have done better you know when I got my 2-1 in my degree my brother told me that it wasn't as good as his 2-1 because I went to a 
he went to better university than I did. And so there was always this, you know, there was always this thing of, there was always this thing of, yeah, but you could have done that better. You could have done better, couldn't you, Esther? And I always felt whether it was coming from other people or from myself, there was always this sense that I wasn't doing as well as I should have been. And my house was always a mess. My, I mean, it's better now. I'm a lot better on the domestic front now, but it's still not like what most people would call tidy, I'm sure. And it's just this years and years and years of really poor self-esteem and and really hating myself, really. And and because you can't articulate that you actually absolutely despise yourself, that came across as some really unpleasant behavior sometimes. You know, I'd be really mean to people because, you know, that projection thing that I would I was unhappy with myself, so I'd have to find somebody else I could I could belittle to make myself feel better. And, and it just, it was just a miserable 20s and 30s of constant stress, constant unhappiness that I couldn't even really acknowledge was there. Because if I acknowledged it was there, then I'd have to look at myself. And I didn't want to do that because I didn't like what I saw even when I looked at the surface level of myself. And during that time, I also experienced a bereavement. My brother died. And because now of what I see as I understand now as my ADHD emotions, you know, emotions and ADHD are this, this enormously complex, extreme thing. And so my my reaction to my brother's death was extreme because I, I went into this massively prolonged grief sort of process that took me until I got sober nine years later, really, it was only when I stopped drinking that I started to actually process my emotions about that. Um, and so, you know, it was just these, always these extremes of emotions that I never knew how to handle and constantly feeling like I was not really someone I should be. I was not being who I should be and not knowing how to be that person. You know, happy, wild, wild, happy highs. Like if I was excited about something, everyone around me knew about it. You know, I would, and I would be excited for months, you know, like a child at Christmas. So I could get really happy. But then the lows, I remember times when I would be lying on my sofa and it felt like, you know, um, the Death Eaters in Harry Potter. Not the Death Eaters, the, um, the ones yeah. who suffer with joy. Yeah. They're not the Death Eaters. I can't remember what they're called. But those, I identified with that so much because that was exactly how I would feel sometimes it was like everything that was even remotely good in me was just gone and there was just this empty shell in me so I had quite a long history of of poor mental health but not recognizing it as poor mental health because I had such a low opinion of myself I never saw that I had anything that actually warranted asking for help I never saw that I deserved the help or that I needed the help. I just thought that I was, you know, this this awful person who deserved to lie on the sofa feeling dead inside because I was no better than that. So when I eventually had the inevitable breakdown in 2013, which was so long coming, you know, it was a bit of a shock at the time, but with hindsight, I knew that it, it needed to happen. That kind of opening and that tearing me apart that that happened, it saved my life because it it meant I had to look and change how I was living. And through that, I became, I decided, I I trained as a yoga teacher and that gave me um, tools to, to be able to see myself, to be able to actually look at myself, to be able to see myself and to be able to start to like myself and to accept this is who I am and I'm okay with that. I'm okay. Yes, my house is messy, but I'm okay. And yes, you know, I haven't done my to-do list today, but I'm okay. And to get, it gave me these tools that allowed me to relax and to balance out my emotions a little bit because they were so all over the place that I was, I was just in this whirlwind of constant emotional reaction. And so the yoga gave me that space and and tools to calm myself and then I was able to stop drinking and then that sort of self-awareness that was opened up during yoga meant that when I then discovered oh I think maybe I've got ADHD 
I was actually able to deal with that because I don't think I would have been able to handle that a few years previously because up until that point, my only experience of ADHD was when I um, was trainee primary school teacher, which is what I did my degree in. There was this one little boy who I met when he was medicated. He had apparently been one of these, you know, he was on the ceiling constantly. He was unbearable for the teachers. And they medicated him to the point where his eyes were the scariest thing I've ever seen because it looked like there was nobody in there. It was like they'd medicated him out of existence and he was just this body. And it frightened me. And that was all I understood of ADHD at the time. So I think had I figured out maybe five years previously that I have ADHD, I I wouldn't have coped with it. I don't think I would have handled it at all. And I think it would have become another stick for me to beat myself with rather than a discovery that actually helped me to really start to come to terms with who I am and to find that kind of absolute acceptance. I mean, I still really annoy myself sometimes and I still get frustrated by my ADHD traits. And, you know, it is hard. But it, is, it is a hard way to, to live in this world. You know, this world is not designed for us and it is really challenging sometimes. Uh, even when I'm looking at my the to-do list I write in the morning and I'm like, I didn't do any of that. What have I done all day? I can be okay with that because I think, well, I've probably done other stuff. You know, I just haven't done that. You know, that was a ridiculous list. Why did I write that? And and so I can be forgiving of myself, whereas I, I really don't think I would have been previously. And so yoga helped me, not only helps me to manage the ADHD, but it helped me to accept it. So you were saying there's like three different tangents I want to go yeah, on. sorry. No, that's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm tapping my fingers because when, when I, something comes up, I have to remind myself by tapping my fingers. I've got three fingers going now. So the first one is the emotions. You mentioned about the emotions and ADHD. Is that one of the, um, what do you call it, one of the symptoms in girls is that your emotions are heightened and sort of really extreme? Yeah, now the emotion side of ADHD is fascinating because it isn't, it used to be part of the uh, recognized diagnostic criteria and it's not anymore. And apparently they took it out because it's not easy, it's, it's, it's harder to measure emotions. So it's harder to put it into a, a, a formal diagnostic criteria. It's harder to research. I don't entirely understand um, because what I see in all the ADHD for like, I mean, a lot of groups with women, particularly with ADHD, because while I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I care about men with ADHD as well, but I'm really interested in the experience of women with ADHD. And what I see in those groups, those Facebook groups, it's all about our emotions. There's not a single thing that isn't actually connected to our emotions. And I mean, that's true of all human beings. You know, we think that we, we, we tell ourselves that we're thinking creatures, that we're logical beings, but we're not because everything we do is driven by our emotions. And we just logic our way to justify our emotional reaction to life. You know, we, we, we act from our emotions always. And in ADHD, the emotional response is amplified and we also have this delightful thing called rejection sensitive dysphoria which only um according to what i've read has only ever been found in people with adhd and that is a bitch (laughs) because that will have me telling myself as we're doing this call now you might do something with your eyes or you might do something your mouth might change something tiny little thing that I see I see in you and I might convince myself that you absolutely hate me that you're bored rigid and that you can't wait to get off this call or somebody might um you know I send somebody a text and I still haven't heard from them two hours later and so I've convinced myself that they don't like me anymore and that they're never going to talk to me again and that they're actually trying to figure out how to tell me to piss off out of their lives and so on and it's and it affects everything. And I look back at my life and I can see how this bloody thing has 
destroyed so much in my life. I have walked away from friendships because I've convinced myself that I've done something to upset them. And I've not had the courage to actually say, have I done this? Because I'm scared of them saying yes. And I'm scared of them saying that they don't like me anymore. So I'll just never talk to them again. And I've walked away from some brilliant friendships. I've, I've absolutely discarded some of the most important people in my life because of it. And I don't know how to go back and heal that anymore because it's been too long. You know, it's been like 10 years or more. And I don't know how to make that right anymore. And yet I can still feel that pain when I think about those people. And I've I've not applied for jobs that I knew I could have done because I thought, oh, no, there's this one tiny thing that they won't take me for it. You know, it, it affects everything. So our emotions are the absolute pivot, pivotal thing of how we live with ADHD, like everything, even down to you know, procrastination. Procrastination is another one of the big traits with ADHD, but that's about it. That's an emotional response. That's a, I'm scared to do this, or I'm far too interested in this other thing, or that's really boring. And it's all an emotional response. It's all about our emotions. So everything comes down to how we feel and the medical community taking that out of the diagnostic criteria, I think is a spectacularly unhelpful thing that, that, particularly impacts women again because women are more in tune with you know we are more in touch with our emotions we're more allowed to have like boys men you know there's a whole other story a whole other conversation around men and their emotions and, and I could talk about that for hours as well but women we know that we're emotional creatures you know we're not in denial about it or we're not told we can't be so for them to take that out of the ADHD criteria and tell us that that doesn't count, I think it's doing it, it's part of the reason why women don't um, recognize themselves having ADHD. And it's part of the reason why there is so little understanding of women and girls and ADHD, because that's not included. Take that in and, and the number of diagnosed women with ADHD would skyrocket. It's, sure. it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you think of it, from that perspective, I've got four fingers going now. When you think of it from that perspective, <laughs> so many questions coming out of this. It's like, it's, you know, the hysterical woman thing. I wonder how much of that historically has to do with ADHD women. I'm building up on yeah. that, what you said about, um, you know, you look for the slight nuances in people's faces. How, you know, the people who are very good at reading other people, I wonder what proportion of them are ADHD, you know, because we're yeah. looking for meaning all the time, you know, trying to read we, people. Yeah, we are. And I think that probably comes from our sense that we don't quite fit. So we become very good at figuring out where, how to, how to kind of react to people because that's how we learn how to fit. We, we become really skilled at looking um, and, and I think it probably comes, I don't know, this is going to maybe another finger for you now, but um, the, have you read Tom Hartman's book about the hunter? Hunt, I can't remember what the name of the book is, but he says that it goes back to our like prehistoric ancestry and that we have the hunter gene because hunters needed to be hyper aware they needed to be hyper focused they needed to be able to react emotionally you know you needed to be able to respond immediately and to for looking at that deer over there and then that bolt oh look there's another thing over there that I can get and so we are wired to be really responsive to our environment to be really responsive immediately whereas the farmers which is the majority of society they're more patient they're more methodical they're more like long term so you know you plant the seed now and you know that it's going to grow whereas a hunter needs like I need it now I need it now um so so those that hunter gene and, and, and I've listened to his book on Audible and, and it just makes so much sense. I really, I believe everything he says, it just makes complete sense. So that means that you're very, very quick at responding to something in the moment, that you're very quick at spotting, you know, you, you, the hunter would see the slightest hint of movement in the distance and know that there's an animal there and react to it immediately because you know you need to get it because otherwise you're not going to eat. 
So we are, we're very attuned to picking up on the tiniest signals. And we don't always get it right because we don't always, because we're not always able to read things right. And because of this rejection sensitivity and our negativity bias, you know, we're more prone to think something, somebody thinks badly of us because we've grown up with so many negative messages. I think it's 20,000 more negative messages the kids get by the age of 12. Kids with ADHD get 20,000 more negative messages about themselves. So we see these things and then we assume the worst because that's what life has told us we're going to get. Yeah. So, and then talking about the the little boy that you saw who was on medication and he was just lost. I mean, that's that's a big thing for me why when my eldest two were at school and they were talking about my eldest might have ADHD and I'm like you will not label him and you will not start telling me to go to a doctor to give him drugs I'm not having that and we went to a Montessori school I took them to a really strict old-fashioned Montessori school and he just thrived like one of the things that they did at this particular school was the children had to do jobs around school to pay for their school excursions. The parents didn't pay for them. The kids did all little jobs, sweeping up, cleaning windows, whatever. Jamie paid for an entire class excursion in his first term because he <laughs> But when he'd got all that energy out, then he was ready to work. And when he sat down and worked, the amount of work he got through was phenomenal. But he just needed that freedom to get rid of the energy, the physical energy, mm. get, you know, and ground himself almost. And then he was, he could get on with it. And mm. that stood him in really great stead. But the question I was going to ask, and I don't know whether you know the answer to this, is if a girl is diagnosed with ADHD, do the medications work on girls? Because it's a completely different way of, oh, what do you call it? It, it, it fronts in a completely different way to, in girls to how it does in boys. I'm looking for. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, um, I don't know about girls because obviously I didn't, I, I can only speak about my own experience. I've been on medication. I've been on Concerta since November last year and... I was so I started on a very low dose, didn't notice anything at all, could barely even remember to take the pills. You know, I, I didn't notice any difference. And then he upped my dose a little bit. And the next time I went to see that psychiatrist, which is actually the last time I've seen him, and I really need to see him. But I was saying, well, I, I feel a lot calmer. You know, I feel a lot better. And after we'd sat in the room together for about half an hour, and, and I was starting to feel emotionally a bit more grounded at that point because I was at the point of diagnosis I was in a bit of a a, a bit of a strange sort of emotional place and he said to me at the end he said well I can tell the medication is working because you've managed to sit still the entire time we're talking and it was in that moment that I realized that I was pretty hyperactive and I'd never thought about it before but I am, and, and this year, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure my medication is working so well this year, but I'm also not sure if that's just, you know, it's 2020, we've gone through hell. There's not a medication, there's no way ADHD medication is not designed to deal with 2020. So I don't know if it's the medication's not working or if it's just that actually I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with other stuff as well. And it's not just the ADHD that's causing it but I say in that and actually I'm in a really good place you know I'm in a better place than I was this time last year and I can't tell you for absolutely sure if it's the medication or if it's that I've enormously upped my yoga practice this year and I've been really you know doing the the self-care stuff a lot more because I knew that the only way I was going to get through this year was to really lean on my self-care practices. So I can't tell you what it is that's doing it, but I know, I, I feel, I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm as distractible and I'm, I'm very prone to procrastination, which six months ago, well, actually six months ago, I didn't know what I was doing. So, you know, there are times when I think, I don't think this medication is working, but then I look at how much I've got in my life and I think, actually, you know, I've just got too much on. So there's no wonder I'm not getting everything done. So I think it does work. 
but you, it, it doesn't always work for everybody. And I think this is the key is it might be that I need a different medication. It might be that medication isn't the answer for me. Some people it really doesn't work for. Some people it doesn't make them worse, but it doesn't really do anything. Some women actively get ill on the medication. You know, they can't handle the stimulants. The non-stimulants don't work. So it depends. I think some people it's, it's, it saves them and some people it, it doesn't work for them. So I think you've got to, the, the key is finding a, a, a doctor, a psychiatrist or whoever's treating you to, to make sure that you're working with them and that you're able to tell them how it's, how it's showing up for you, how it's affecting you so that you can work together to find the best treatment. But also it's not enough on its own. You know, it's not like a a magic pill that's going to cure your ADHD or that's going to solve all your ADHD traits. You have to do the other thing. Like you have to do the self-care. You have to make sure you're getting enough sleep. You have to make sure you're eating well. You have to, the exercise factor is really important. Medication alone isn't going to solve it. It's not going to, it's not the only thing. It's part of the plan. Now, I know that if I was only relying on my medication and not doing the yoga, not doing the breathing, not doing the writing, not doing the exercise, if I wasn't doing any of those, I wouldn't be feeling the benefits of the medication. So it's just part of the toolbox. So going back to it, because you said a few times that yoga gave you the tools to be able to recognize what was going on and release a lot of the stuff. How did it do that? So going back to when I was doing my teacher training, it so I was I said I was I was in the in the grips of a twenty year alcohol addiction that I didn't even I wouldn't even acknowledge that I had. If you told me I had a drinking problem, I would have got really angry with you, denied it, and listed all the friends that I have that could prove to you that I wasn't an alcoholic because if anyone was an alcoholic, it's them. Um, because that's how it works. You can only have one alcoholic in your group of friends, apparently. <laughs> but that was what I, you know, I surrounded myself with people who made me feel like my behavior was normal. But what yoga did, and it was really profound. So the first, one of the first things that happened was that after a lifetime of not being able to breathe properly, I um so I've got a dust allergy. And I'm asthmatic. My nose was constantly blocked all the way through childhood, all the way through adulthood. And there's some theories that would suggest that that's actually contributed to my ADHD. There's some theories about how we breathe and ADHD that I'm, I haven't explored and I'm going to at some point. But so I, I didn't breathe through my nose ever. And then when I was doing my teacher training, obviously I needed to learn how to do the pranayama. So <clears throat> I was advised to give up dairy because that causes mucus. And so I gave up dairy. Within less than a week, I was able to breathe through my nose and I was able to learn to breathe. And as soon as I started doing that, like within weeks, as soon as I was able to breathe through my nose and slow my breath down and breathe more deeply, breathe more consciously, I started to notice my life changing. So I was begin. I started to be able to sleep and I'd had insomnia since I was a child. And this was one of the, one of the um, contributing factors and justifications for my drinking. You know, I, I can't sleep, so I need wine to help me sleep. So I was able to sleep and, you know, I was able to get into bed and fall asleep rather than listening to several inner monologues going off at once, keeping me awake all night. I was able to regulate how I was reacting to life. So I was going through a really nasty breakup, a really nasty breakup. And I remember this one time, this was before I'd stopped drinking. And I remember he was standing on my doorstep and we were having yet another fight. And he, he'd said something that normally would have triggered me to just lose the plot completely and and you know I was very good at the hysterical overreaction you know start shouting and screaming and swearing in the street and he said this thing and I can't remember what it was he said but all I remember doing is I brought my hands to my chest in the the namaskar mudra the yoga prayer position and I breathed I just took a really deep breath in and I released that breath and I didn't 
react the way he expected me to. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't um, bite. I didn't allow that argument to happen. And then without me reacting, it was like he had nowhere to go then because he was so used to being able to push my buttons and get that reaction from me that when I, he didn't, he didn't know what to do. So the conversation fizzled away. He left and I shut the door and I remember thinking, oh my God, that was amazing. Because that was the first time I'd done that. That was the first time I consciously used my breath to stop myself reacting. And, and it was just, and I mean, that was like, that was seven years ago. And I still remember that because it was such a powerful moment for me. So gradually then through my breath, I was able to process all those emotions that I'd been hiding from and that I'd been suppressing for so many years. And I was able to be with them and be with the pain of, that I was carrying around with me and to, to be with all that self-loathing and all of that unhappiness and all of that fear and everything that was swirling around inside me. I was able to actually look at it for the first time. And I, I write a lot. And I, it was when I was doing my teacher training that I started to really discover the power of writing as well. So I did a lot of healing through writing. I mean, I, between my breath and, and writing, I, that's how I, I, I'm basically my own therapist these days, through my breath and writing. And so I did it predominantly through breathing and writing. I and mean, there were lots of other practices, lots of other concepts that helped me as well. <clears throat> but predominantly it was breathing and writing. And those I still use now. You know, when, when life is difficult, I go to my yoga mat, I sit and I breathe. I do some practice, some postures, some stretches. I might go for a walk. That's another one for me is going for a walk and being out in nature. But I predominantly, I breathe and I write. And I mean, God, if, if <laughs> when, I, when I die and people decide to go through my, um, if, if anybody goes through my, my Google Docs and my morning pages app and my notebooks, it's like, oh my God, please don't ever read those because I probably said something awful about everyone at some point. <laughs> because, you know, you process stuff and you process how you feel and, you know, stuff from my childhood and all this stuff that needed to be dealt with came up. But yeah, it's really powerful, really powerful breathing and being with your breath and, and breathing deeply. Because when you breathe deeply and when you breathe slowly and really consciously, it, it calms your nervous system down. It takes you out of that stress response. It increases um, dopamine and it uh, brings you into this relaxed state where you can, you know, my, my brain never becomes quiet. You know, people think that, that sitting and doing this is all about emptying your mind. That's rubbish. If you've got ADHD, don't go there expecting that because I've been doing this for years and I still have nonsense going on in my head when I'm doing it. But I'm actually aware of the nonsense. You know, instead of having all these thoughts racing around in my head and I'm not even conscious of them, but they're driving my behavior, I'm aware of what I'm thinking. I can see it and I can then look at that thinking, well, that's meaningless. So I don't need to pay any attention to that or, OK, that's really important. I need to look at that at some point. Or, and then sometimes things will come up that I'm like, oh, oh I didn't know that was going to happen. And then I'll go and write about it. So, you know, the, the, the idea that, that meditation is something that you do that means you empty your head when you've never done it before is, is really, really letting people down because particularly in the ADHD community, I mean, there's a massive resistance to sitting still for a start and there's a massive you know, feeling of not doing things right. You know, if we can't do things right, we hate ourselves for it. So we go into something like meditation thinking we have to sit still for half an hour and we have to empty our head. We can't do either of those things for half an hour. We can't even do them for half a second sometimes. So we think that we failed and so then we think we can't do it and then we hate ourselves for it and wish we hadn't tried. But actually, if you've got ADHD, sitting for one minute and watching your breath is going to be really profoundly beneficial for you. And the more you do it, the more you can sit, the more you can just be okay with the fact that your brain's really still really active. I don't even try to stop thinking. I just, when, I, when I'm doing it now, my thoughts are there. They're always there, but I'm keeping my focus on the breath. So I know that my, I'm thinking, 
But whenever I find myself getting sort of distracted with the thoughts, I just come back to to the breath. And if I can keep my attention on one inhalation or one exhalation at a time, then that's good enough for me. And I don't worry about the next one. And I don't worry about the ones that I've missed. I just focus on the one that I'm doing at the time. And whatever else is going on in my head is fine. And that's a, that in itself, that in itself can lead you to self-acceptance because when you're okay with the noise in your head and you can just be with that, you can be okay with everything else or you can start to be okay with everything else. And it's, it's really profound. Even just one minute will just, you know, one minute every day will change your life. Wow. It's nearly time for us to wrap up now. Oh, oh no, is it? Already? Oh my word. So the last thing I was going to ask you is, can you tell me sort of what symptoms to look for in yourself or in your daughters? What are the major symptoms? And also what you can do to help yourself? I mean, for you, it's been the breathing and the yoga and just the self-care is the most important. That's what I'm hearing. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so self-care and also finding other people like you. So as well as as well as the yoga, as well as the writing, the other thing that really helped me was a Facebook group called ADHD for Smart Ass Women, which I found I I joined one group, which my first interaction with them left me feeling like, well. I don't even fit in the ADHD community then because I can't even get that right. And I left that group and then I found ADHD for smart ass women. And it was like, oh my God, I found my people. And, you know, you, you spend five minutes in that group and you think, yeah, okay, I am crazy, but so is everybody else. And it's fine because they're all so brilliant. And if they're all brilliant, then that must mean I am as well. And Tracy Otsuka, who's the, the, the founder of that group, she's also got a podcast and she is just the most amazing person. She is so strength focused that if you spend, like I, I've been having some coaching with her and I did her course in the summer and it's, it was amazing. But even if you just listen to her podcast or you just go in the group and the, the ethos of the group and the, the way that the group is run, it's so strength focused that you constantly being reminded that yes, you have challenges, but you also have strengths. And finding your strengths is so empowering because actually when you look at the strengths of ADHD, they are the traits that are actually the hallmarks of success and of um, that the people want, you know, we're creative, we're innovative, we're passionate, we, we can go on a podcast at quarter to six in the morning when we're still quite tired and talk absolutely too much. We've got so much that remembering to focus on your strengths and find your strengths is, is really important and really valuable. So going back to what you asked about, about symptoms and traits. So Excessive talking is one. I'm I'm hyperactive. I'll dance in the supermarket with my headphones on. And and I've only started doing that in my 40s. I think that's also evolved a little bit with the I don't really care what anyone thinks about me anymore thing that comes when you're in your 40s. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't sit still. So hyperactivity does come out in girls. It's not the same as with boys. It'll be fidgeting. It might be nail biting. It might be you know, constantly fiddling with their hair. It might be scratching. It, it, any kind of persistent body tick, anything that, you know, like picking at the skin, tapping your foot. And hyperactivity also comes out in excessive thinking So and talking. So distractibility is, is, is the, probably the most commonly known trait. Um, so, you know, if, if they can't focus long enough to finish their homework, and it's a 10-minute task. If they can't do that, then maybe, you know, there's something to look at there. Untidiness, untidy, not, and not actually knowing how to tidy somewhere and not knowing how to keep somewhere tidy. That's a huge one. Timekeeping, time management, prioritization, emotional issues. So, you know, if the emotions are very, very extreme, that can look like depression. It can look like bipolar. I thought I was bipolar quite a few years I wasn't diagnosed but that was what I assumed I was it can look like you know elation if you if somebody gets really excited about something 
Like, you know, I would be going to see a band and it would be like, this was the absolute highlight of my life. You know, I'm going to see this band. That wasn't a normal response. You know, it wasn't. I was like 35 years old, like a child at Christmas about going to see a band. That's not a normal response. Forgetting what they were about to say, forgetting their point mid-sentence. That's it. That's another one. (laughs) Fast. Talking very fast is also, I think, an ADHD trait. Don't, like, having the potential and not achieving. So if your child is coming home and their school reports constantly say, could do better, has potential, is not achieving their potential, there's a reason for that. It's not because they're not trying. They're probably trying as hard as they possibly can. And seeing that on their school report is probably devastating them. And giving them a hard time about not achieving their potential isn't going to help them achieve their potential. And it probably is the most common flag that people get, I would imagine, if your child isn't achieving their potential, there is a reason for it. And it might be, you know, it might not be. It might be that they're being bullied in school. It might be that there's something else going on. It might not be. But if that's consistent throughout their school life, and they, you know, it's not that they're being bullied by the same kid year after year after year or something like that, then then it's worth looking at whether they have some sort of neurological difference because, yeah, I was that kid, you know, and, and I was, I was apart from a couple of subjects, I knew I couldn't have been trying any harder. I knew that I, there was no better I could have done and I couldn't understand why I was being told I could have tried harder because I couldn't. Poor handwriting as well. I think that's quite a common one too. But then that has also got other things. But And that's because, um, you know, because our brains are operating at a different speed. So our brains are really fast. And our hands can't keep up with it. So, you know, the, the, your thoughts are three words ahead. So your, your hands are trying to, struggling to keep up. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, that's just a few that I can think of off the top of my head. I know that after we finish this call, I'm going to think, oh, yeah, and that, and that, and that, because there's lots. And I can't remember whether I told you about it last time. It's, it's called puttylike.com. P-U-T-T-Y-L-I-K-E. I think you did mention it, yes. And she's... She talks about, um, she coined this term multi-potentialite. It's for people yes. who can't stick at anything for five minutes and yes. she's, it, it's ADHD. It's female yes. ADHD. That's, that's yes. what it is. Yeah, she's very supportive of people. She's got a lot of great mm-hmm. stuff going on. Yeah, on. yeah, that is, that is another real big fact, big um, sig- signal is, is that get so passionate about something, become an absolute expert in it, and then three weeks later... Because that's how long it takes someone with ADHD to become an expert. You never speak about it ever again. And you're really embarrassed about it. Or you you just, you're not embarrassed. I do sometimes, like, I'll, I'll get really excited. I'm like, I'm doing this now. And then I'm like, oh, I hope nobody remembers I said I was going to do that. Because now I don't want to do it. But now I want to do this. And, you know, and, and we get so exuberant, so excited about it, as about our passions. And, and then that leads people to think that, you know, you're fickle, you, 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 you're, you're flighty, you, have no, you don't stick at anything. But actually, we might learn more about that thing in a month. In that month, we're super passionate about it than it would take you to learn in two years. You know, and we might know more about that. And then we, we've learned all we need to know. So why would we stay interested in it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because, because people with ADHD need that positive, they need that dopamine hit. That, and, and so we need that positive emotion. So once something's boring, we're not going to want to do it. Thank you so much. It's time to wrap up and I really appreciate it. And there are no expressions on this face of rejection. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's, it, to you it's like this is something that needs to be spoken about. It's something mm. that we need to be more aware of. ADHD is not a boy's thing. It's across both genders and we just need yes. to recognise the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And the other positive thing I think as well, we were talking about this the other day and I'll, I may as well share it here. A couple of years ago, maybe a bit more than that, I put up a post on Facebook about how I like to move all the time, which apparently is another trait of people with ADHD. 
I like to move hats all the time and I'm saying this and this psychologist in the States actually on Facebook wrote a comment on my post diagnosing me with ADHD, telling me to go to the doctors and telling me exactly which tablet I needed to ask for and also telling me that when I took these tablets I would be more normal. And when I'm more normal, then I would be happier. And I'm like, hey, I don't want to be normal. Normal is my <laughs> worst nightmare. I'd rather be different. But the yeah. other thing for me is life's a bell curve. And we're kind of on the outer extremities, but it's it's those outer extremities that keep life developing and keep moving things forward you know we need 80 percent of the people yeah. to be normal but we need 20 percent to be like bubbling on the extremities making yeah. a difference right? absolutely you know, every 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 development every innovation that has moved mankind forward was come up with by an ad by by somebody who looks at i mean is somebody somebody who looks and thinks about how you can change the status quo is not in the percent because no. if you're in the percent you don't want to change the status quo because that's where you live. If you are in, if you are looking and thinking, how can I do this differently? This can be done so much better. That creativity, that innovative thinking, that out of the box thinking, that comes from that. That comes from the different brain. And and like so I said, you know, these are the traits that society needs. And society needs to stop telling us that we're rubbish for having them because actually if you, if you if everyone that has ADHD was medicated into normality, we'd stagnate. We would absolutely stagnate. You know, everyone who has ever changed the world in any way could probably get an ADHD diagnosis. I'm convinced of it. Uh, well, I or think so because one that I remember is somebody saying had Albert Einstein been born a hundred years later he would have been on Ritalin and he would never have created yeah. any of the things that he did yeah and Galileo I mean Galileo he's the one who figured out that we move around the sun wasn't he imagine that kind of thinking doesn't come from a normal brain they would have medicated that out of him and we'd still think we lived on a flat planet that, or we, that, that the world, that the universe revolved around us. Yeah. yeah. We need, we need these brains. And, and when you look at the, the positivities and the, the traits that people with ADHD do love about that ADHD, it is the stuff that people aspire to have. It absolutely is. That creativity, that innovation, that passion, that's the stuff that makes the world go around. You know, we do need the farmers, but we need the hunters as well. We do. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. It's been an absolute joy. Well worth getting up early for. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you visit our website, middleagedwomenstuff.com, where you can subscribe to the show in any of the players or via RSS so you'll never miss a thing. If you liked this show, you might want to check out the webpage, which gives you lots more information about both our host and our guest, along with heaps of other resources. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday and Friday for the next episode. And that's all for this episode. We can't wait to see you next time.